We're gonna talk about whales. We're gonna talk about whales. Yeah, whales. It's Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where we're from Connecticut, we only work on the internet. I am Glenn Butler, and I kind of live on the internet as well as work on the internet. With me, as always, is my brother, Scott Butler, whose guesses I'll take over most people's facts. Scott, how do you feel? Generally, by reaching out and touching something and allowing the texture of it to impact the neurons in the tips of my fingers. There's a high concentration of them there. Indeed. With us also on this night is our first two-time guest, and now our first three-time guest, because this is becoming a bit of a habit, Mr. Andy Halleen. Andy, how do you feel? I feel great. I am glad to hear it, because today we are talking about a movie that we all love, a movie that a lot of people love. We are back in the Star Trek film vault. We are talking about Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. Also, of course, the one with the whales. It's a damn good one, though. It really, really is. Scott, talk a little bit about where you're coming from on this movie. This is, in a lot of ways, the most popular Star Trek movie. It's It was the most financially successful before the 2009 film, which was a legitimate blockbuster. But this is sort of the comedy one, this is the funny one, the lighthearted one. It's the one where they all go back into modern times. And so it was a big success over and above what the other Star Trek films attained. And so it's the one they run on TV... All the time. On sci-fi, on other cable channels, on broad... They run it all the time. And at some point, around the mid-1990s or so, I got so fucking sick of this movie. Because they ran it all the time. Whenever they ran a Star Trek movie, they ran Star Trek 4. And whenever there was Star Trek on TV, I would watch it. And most of the time, it was Star Trek 4. And I got so fucking sick of it. Finally, I just stopped watching it. And I didn't watch this movie for about 10 years. I did not watch the movie once, not any part of it, not at all. 
from about the mid-90s until the mid-2000s, I did not watch this film at all. And then when they started releasing the DVDs, I was getting the DVDs as they came out, and every time I got a DVD, I would sit down and watch it. You know, check out the special features, you know, check out if there's a commentary, you know, check out the transfer, see if the picture's any good. So when I got the Star Trek IV DVD, I sat down and I watched the movie for the first time in literally about a decade. And it was a really good movie! Now that I wasn't so completely overwhelmingly sick of it, I could appreciate the movie again. And it's a great movie. I love this movie. It's got the most brilliant comedic dialogue of any of the Star Trek movies. It just sings. It just, it just pops. Every line just works. And it's funny. And it's not like overly trying to be funny. It just is really, really funny. The, the, the scenes work. The characters work. It all flows. It's not trying too hard. It's a legitimately great, funny Star Trek movie. Yeah, I basically had a very similar experience, except for me, I didn't watch it again until the Blu-rays came out in 2009, and we did a marathon of all of them, uh, at least the first six. Was it the Blu-rays and not the DVDs? Yeah, we, yeah, we did a marathon when the Blu-rays came out. Well, I know we did a marathon when the Blu-rays came out, but I thought we watched the DVDs as they came out as well. Uh, I don't know if you did, but I hadn't seen four in a long time in 09 when the Blu-rays came out, and we did that, and... I just came to love it all over again. I think what did it in for me in the mid-late 90s, I have this vague memory of some weekend where HBO just ran it for like 48 hours. As if it was Christmas Story or something. <laughs> I'm not sure they ever did that. I'm, I'm, but I'm, Sci-Fi Channel used to do like weekend Star Trek marathons, and the pattern would be like, Star Trek 2, Star Trek 4, Star Trek 3, Star Trek 4, Star Trek 5, Star Trek 6, Star Trek 4, Star Trek 2, Star Trek 4, Star Trek 3, Star Trek 4, Star Trek 6, Star Trek 4. Yeah, yeah, basically. They'd run every other movie, like, twice over the weekend in Star Trek 4 six times. Yeah, but what I really, really came to love was just how it put a different spin on the whole universe. I mean, there was always comedy. There was always banter in the original series and a little bit in the preceding movies. Very little of it in one, but a lot more in two and, and some good stuff in three. But in four, they really, really just made a comedy with these characters that we've got to know in a dramatic setting, and with these actors who've been playing them in a dramatic setting, and they all turned out to be great. <laughs> it's just so well-constructed as well that I really, really was able to come back to it fresh and just love it. But we're going to get into all those ways that it is so good. Uh, Andy... I know you're a little more of a casual Star Trek viewer than Scott or I am. Uh, what is your relationship with this movie? Where are you coming from? Well, um, when you guys had said that you watched the movies before the last one came out or something like that, um, that's kind of what I find myself doing with these. I watch the Star Trek movies like when the next one's about to come out. And I think um, I got into it through my grandma probably when I was like five or six. I think Star Trek V must have been on HBO then, because I remember seeing a lot from, like, 89 on HBO, like, a lot of those movies. And then, like, 2, 3, and 4 all kind of ran together for me. I guess I've seen the shows, like, 
um, you know, sporadically, like, like I saw some Next Generation when it was actually on, but I've watched a lot more on, like, reruns. Now, first, I want to talk about sort of the plot and the way that this movie is constructed and, and the style of it. Obviously, coming off of Star Trek Three, which, as we mentioned in the last show, is a little more mature, a little more meditative. There's a lot going on with, you know, life and death and rebirth and all that. Star Trek Four, in contrast, is kind of a light-hearted romp. As if our characters have been through so, so much, now they get to have fun for a little while. And now we get to have a lot of fun with them for a couple hours. There's a little bit of danger in the movie. There's the standard, you know, threat to life on Earth and all that stuff. But it's not treated with a lot of seriousness because it's not the point. Andy, what do you think about the change in emphasis and the change in tone for this movie? Well, these movies, 2, 3, and 4, um, right, they're all sequels. And uh, they kind of follow the same kind of uh, plot. I like how they have um, their own identity as movies, though, and I think that's kind of like what the show is, right? It's kind of an episodic, I guess, episodic nature to these movies, it seems. Yeah, definitely. Well, it, it's one story that's kind of intertwined and told over the three movies, but the three movies each have a very different feel. It's actually a lot more intertwined than the TV series ever was. I mean, the TV series was, was much more episodic, but... These few movies, they're following directly on. They take place weeks after the last one. I guess I mean like every episode wasn't a big thing at stake or something. There was always like a comedy one thrown in there too. Um, yes, yes. The original series did have some great comedy episodes. Like the Tribbles. Exactly. There was, there was the Tribbles. There was a piece of the action. There was even I, Mud. And so it is an established genre that they had done on the TV show a lot, but the movies to this point had been rather serious. And so I think it really just makes it feel fresh. I think it's somewhat odd, if you're going to analyze the tone of each film like that, that the movies seem to get more lighthearted as the stakes get higher and higher. Because Star Trek II is a fairly serious movie. There's one or two funny lines, but it is, for the most part, a serious movie. With a serious tone about serious issues, and all they're battling is one dude who stole a starship. You get to Star Trek III, Spock is dead, and they're trying to bring him back to life. An entire starship is destroyed. David is murdered by Klingons. The Enterprise blows up. But overall, 3 is a much more light-hearted movie than 2. Even despite all of those heavy issues, there's a lot more lightness in 3. There's a lot more humor in 3 compared to 2. And then you get to Star Trek 4, where the stakes are this probe is going to vanquish all life on the planet Earth and cripples any starship that comes within range of it. And it's going to destroy the entire headquarters of Starfleet and the headquarters of the Federation and the seat of government and all of the Federation council members and all of the Starfleet command and control. And it's a romping comedy. Yeah, basically, that threat only really exists in the kind of outer parts of the sandwich that is the movie. I mean, there's the first 20 minutes, and then, like, almost the entire plot of the movie. All of the comedy section of the movie. And then 20 minutes at the end, kind of dealing with all the plot. All, all of the plot and exposition and all that. 
Uh, and that actually is part of the making of the movie because the first 20 minutes and the last 20 minutes, everything taking place in the future with Starfleet headquarters and the Federation president and the court-martial at the end and Sarek was written by Harv Bennett, who wrote Star Trek Three and was the producer of 2 through 5. And everything taking place after they travel in time, and until they travel in time again, is written by Nick Meyer, who wrote Star Trek II and had nothing to do with Star Trek III because he objected to the premise. And so, there is a stark difference. I don't mean to be unkind, but you can tell when the writer of Star Trek III is writing a scene. You know, there's, there's a little more about procedure, and it's a little more dry... It's a little more like the drier sections of Star Trek Three, And that's not a big criticism. I mean, obviously, like we all love this movie. But I think that is really evident. I noticed there were a couple of sections where the movie really did sort of drag for a moment. And they were both in the future, if I recall correctly. There was the one part in the beginning of the movie where Uhura is adjusting the probe signal for what it would sound like underwater... And that just takes her far too long. Like, really, it shouldn't take her more than, like, five seconds. Bleep, bloop, bloop. Here's what it sounds like underwater. But they stop and focus on her pushing imaginary buttons on a fake console for, like, 20 seconds. 30 seconds. Yeah, I suppose that's, you know, to show her actually doing something rather than just push a button and it's done. You know, to show her having technical skills to, like, work through a problem. Well, if you're going to give her screen time, that's not the way to do it. Yeah, true. Everything just seems to take a while while she's, like, adjusting things and they play the sound at various pitches and... It's a legitimate length of time while she's fiddling with imaginary switches and the probe signal plays at different pitches and different volumes before she finally, like, flips the right switch and now it sounds like whale song. That just drags. Um, I didn't have a problem with that. The thing I had a problem with was, like, nobody else in Starfleet could figure out what it was. Um, You know, it was like the Enterprise just shows up and then they do it in, yeah, like 30 seconds. Yeah, that's kind of the age-old trope in Star Trek, where everyone who's not our heroes is kind of incompetent. (laughs) Although, again, that is not even something that, you know, Kirk or Uhura, the communications and linguistics expert, thinks of. That's just Spock having a stroke of insight. Yes, because there is no greater expert on late 20th century fauna than Spock. Well, he's just had, you know, the Federation Encyclopedia downloaded into his brain again. Recently dead Spock. Recently re-educated. <laughs> Although, you know, I'm, I'm glad they have those recordings of Whale Song. Obviously, all those CDs and tapes that were going around in the 80s and 90s got recorded and preserved for time. Hey, um, speaking of um, Whale Song, there was something that popped in my head last night that I wanted to say before I forgot it. Speaking of the whale song, I was on the X-Files podcast, and Agent Reyes had whale songs. Now I'm on uh, the Star Trek podcast, which is related to whale songs. It's kind of a weird symmetry thing. Oh, you're not only my X-Files news and information guy, you're my whale song news and information guy. Yeah. 
If there's ever a probe that's destroying Earth broadcasting a signal and we need to know what species of whale would recognize this signal if it were sounded underwater with particular density and temperature and salinity, you're where we're going. What was the other scene that you mentioned was dragging for you? The other scene was the end of the movie where they release the whales into the ocean. Kirk goes and swims through the cargo bay and hits the lever to open the bay and the whales swim out into the ocean. And then the whales start singing to the probe and the probe is probing back at the whales. And then the whales sing again back to the probe and then the probe probes again back to the whales and then the whales sing again back to the probe and then the probe retracts its little ball and then it sings back to the whales and then the whales sing back to the probe and then the probe probes back to the whales and then the whales sing back to the probe and then the probe starts to fly away but it probes back to the whales and then the whales sing back to the probe and then the pr- it's like three or four minutes of nothing but four minutes of this back and forth shot of the probe with and a shot of the whale with that could have been done in 45 seconds. I didn't need four or five minutes of that. I believe I've read before that the studio wanted to subtitle that scene. <laughs> I was thinking as we were watching it, we need subtitles in this scene. Because if, if you're going to spend this long with the probe and the whales erring back and forth at each other... Give me some subtitles so I know what the fuck you're saying so that I can see the whales telling the probe what to go do with itself. And then I realized what a stupid fucking idea that was to subtitle the whale song between the probe and the whales. And I just reverted back to my original position, which is the scene is taking way too fucking long. Thank you, Scotch, for nearly killing me over here. I was taking a drink and then you went into your impression. Of the fail song, and I was dying. I had to turn off the microphone over here. I was about to choke on my phone. I saw my life flash before my eyes. <laughs> and far too much of it was spent watching whales sing at a probe. I was thinking about that same thing when watching the movie. It was like. Once they once they crash into the water and then Kirk kind of set him free, I was like, I'm ready to come over here and talk with Glenn. But then there was still like five or six more minutes left in the movie. <laughs> and it was so weird, like, because um, you guys just watched that too. It was like the whales were swimming and then they're almost like swimming like upside down, like, you know, facing down. And yeah, like, they like turned vertical. Or what? Because they weren't even singing yet. <laughs> oh, it's all part of the dance of life uh, like so they can only sing like face down that's like weird they're like upside down almost. well there there are different positions to kind of direct the song in different ways i guess i don't know what position you have to be in to direct it towards space yeah maybe you have to be in a weird vertical whale position in order to sing whale song that leaves the ocean leaves the atmosphere and reaches a space probe i want to know what the subtitles would have been are those on the DVD? No. <laughs> there isn't any possible subtitle script for that scene that would be satisfying. There isn't anything that could explain the sort of ancient connection between this probe and the whales that is alien and mysterious. You can't over-explain that kind of thing. Hey, audience... This is Star Trek. Write some fic. 
write up a dialogue that happened between the whales and the probe. Send it to us. I want to read it. <laughs> hey, how come you weren't answering me for the last 48 hours? We just came from the past, dude. Where the fuck did all the other whales go? And then that's kind of sad, because the whales might think they're singing to another whale, but they're just singing to, like, a robot in space. Maybe they made friends, and then now their friend's gone. The internet says, When the alien probe is approaching Earth at the beginning, there were originally subtitles saying things like, Where are you? Can you hear us? <laughs> wow, that would have been horrible. The studio wanted to keep them despite Leonard Nimoy's objections. However, in the first test screening, test audiences indicated the subtitles were unnecessary. Thank you, test audiences, because that is goddamn stupid. By unnecessary, I was about to say, by unnecessary, did they really mean fucking stupid? <laughs> you, you know, when McCoy says at one point, you know, we've got to go get these whales so they can tell the pro what to do with itself, I imagine that as roughly like in Star Wars when R2-D2 beeps a little and C-3PO acts like he's spouting these slurs and expletives. <laughs> I think Andy brings up an important point, though. Do the whales know they're talking to a probe, or is the probe disguising itself acoustically as another whale? Because this is sort of a similar issue that's explored in some episodes of Star Trek, where Starfleet characters disguise themselves as the natives to observe the local culture, and then they get sucked into it, and they start to affect it when they're supposed to be just observing, and all of a sudden you got a group of proto-Vulcans worshipping a god called the Picard... Is this probe, like, inserting itself into this whale culture? And the whales think they're talking to another whale, but whoops, now this whale is light years away and they can't find it anymore. You mean the whale probe has broken the whale prime directive? <laughs> yeah. George and Gracie are now the only whales on Earth. How long are they going to continue searching for that third whale they talked to that one time right after their trip? Well, that depends how well Spock explained it to them when he was mind-melding with whichever one that was. <laughs> Probably Gracie, because she said she was pregnant. <laughs> that scene was so awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. This, this attempt to repopulate the species, it's not exactly going to have a great deal of genetic diversity in that repopulated species. Well, that's something to work on in later installments. It's like a whole Cain and Abel thing. Where did Cain and Abel get their wives? Well, we're going to find out with George and Gracie's calves. Well, the uh, marine biologist, she joined Starfleet. Maybe she's going to uh, head up another team, and they're going to keep going back in time to get more whales and bring them back. They just have the further adventures of the whale crew. Yeah. They keep going back and getting whales from different eras, you know, before <laughs> the 1800s and the population got killed. Well, at the very least, before the 1800s, when they're less likely to be, like, recorded and noticed. That too. Yeah, they're just a random UFO. Hey, you know, we're back on the X-Files, you know, 1986, off the coast of California, some sailors saw some shit. <laughs> yeah, they didn't really break the Prime Directive, but they did kind of influence uh, some inventions, right? So, aren't they still kind of breaking some kind of code doing that? Yeah, they are breaking the, I think it's called in some episodes, the Temporal Prime Directive, or is that only from the novels, the Temporal Prime Directive? No, that's in Voyager. Oh, that's from Voyager? But but yeah, there is a sort of Prime Directive analog that you can't go back and change the past. Which, it depends on how you interpret some scenes. 
they're either flagrantly breaking it left and right, or they're being kind of cheeky about how they're avoiding breaking it. I'm thinking in particular of the scene with McCoy and Scotty at Plex Corp, yeah. where McCoy is like, you know, you're, you're giving him the secret to transparent aluminum. We're not supposed to be, like, giving out future technology to people in the past. And Scotty has the line where he says, how do you know he didn't invent it? Which could mean either A, hey, see no evil, hear no evil, you know what I mean, Doc? Or it could mean, in about ten years, he's credited as the inventor of transparent aluminum. So I'm giving it to him, and he's going to work on it for a while, and then he's going to invent it, just like history recorded. We're clear. I like how they do just kind of blow it off. They're just kind of like, eh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I saw someone online quite insightfully point out that the two people from the crew in that scene making that decision are McCoy, the doctor, and Scotty, the engineer. The two people from the ship most often tasked with, here is a problem, it is urgent, solve it, do anything you have to to just solve this issue that is here right now. You know, someone is sick or injured, find a way to heal them. The ship is injured, fix it. So they're the two people who are most prone to extreme pragmatism in the face of crisis. Well, because the stakes of their problems are generally staggering. Yeah. I mean, when Spock has a problem scanning a nebula, oh no, we can't see inside the nebula. Well, let's move on to the next one and see if we can scan that one. If McCoy has a problem, he's trying to stop a person from dying. If Scotty has a problem, he's generally trying to stop everyone on the ship from dying. Yes. These are urgent issues where their cutting corners will get excused because they've saved a life or saved 400 lives. Exactly. So having these two people debating this matter of temporal ethics, and McCoy is always up for a debate about ethics, but when the chips are down and there's some problem he has to solve, he's going to solve that problem. Well, Chekhov is rather cavalier about the whole thing, too. The first dude that asks him a question, he starts talking about the Starfleet and the Federation, and he gives his <laughs> service code, and he just throws a phaser at the guy. True. And he doesn't even bring the phaser and the communicator with him when he runs away. He throws the phaser at the guy and then flees from where the communicator is. Oh, well, the other thing, something like that, too, is, like, um, I was laughing at it when I was watching it. Sulu's, like, piloting that helicopter... And he's just, you know, all happy flying around. And it's like, dude, everybody's going to see you, like, flying around, dropping this thing in the park. In, yeah. <laughs> uh, into your invisible spaceship. And then, yeah, the lady does see it. Somehow they got an invisible spaceship parked in the middle of Golden Gate Park with Scotty sticking out of the top of it. And a helicopter dragging a giant-ass fucking plexiglass bit, dropping it into the invisible spaceship at a giant indentation in the ground where the foot of the spaceship is. And nobody notices. Yes, th this is a movie that very much operates on comedy logic. I, I think it's a lot more than just Spock that did a little too much LDS. <laughs> I, I wish I had some LDS about now, don't you? <laughs> the hell I do. Yeah. <laughs> very nice use of colorful metaphors. Now... We've said on all of these Star Trek shows, or I've said on all these Star Trek shows at least, that all of the Star Trek movies are about aging. All of the Toast movies is about how the characters are old now. Uh, we, t we trace that through the first three movies. In this movie, there's somewhat of a different perspective on it. This movie is more about, like, reclaimed youth, where 
They've gotten Spock back. They've got their family back together. And now, when Kirk said at the end of Wrath of Khan that he felt young, now he's acting like it. Where they can be a little more cavalier, and, and Kirk can be a little more... I don't want to say roguish, but he has a little more charm in this movie. If anything, he's acting younger than he acted when he was young. Because remember, in the original series, Cadet Kirk was described as a stack of books with legs. Yes. And <laughs> even Kirk in Generations, when he looks back on his younger self, he describes himself as duty-bound and so wrapped up in obligations that he couldn't see past his own uniform. It's not until now, when in Star Trek Three he flushed his career down the toilet to steal a starship and go to the Forbidden Planet to steal his friend's dead body, now he's just sort of has like a reckless abandon about things. We gotta take a Klingon ship back in time to get whales? Okay, let's go! Saddle up! That's something I was thinking about is when I was watching it, is because, like, William Shatner, um... It's kind of weird. Like, I've always kind of been, yeah, like a casual fan of Star Trek. But I think I might have seen him first on the Twilight Zone episodes. And then I've kind of seen him now on, like, the Priceline commercials. So it's really been hard to think of him as the same guy. Like, seeing the younger version of Kirk and now seeing William Shatner as this, I don't know, super crazy guy. Then as I was watching this movie, I'm like, he seems more like William Shatner here that I know. Um, than actually Captain Kirk. There is a transition throughout Bill Shatner's career, the end point of which was when he started just playing a parody of his own TV persona all yeah. the time. Seems he like here in this movie because he's like hitting on that chick and then he's like, hey, I'll talk to you more over dinner. And it's just like, oh my God, that just... <laughs> well... This is this movie is sort of in the middle of a transition point between like young William Shatner from Twilight Zone and Star Trek the series and older William Shatner from Priceline commercials and shit my dad says and the point where he's basically just a parody of himself. This movie is sort of in the middle of that transition. Yeah, a lot of that transition happened over the course of the 80s and we will chart in our next Star Trek podcast, I think there's a lot of transition between here and then, really. Yeah, was he on Rescue, um, what is it, 911 around this time, or was that in the 90s? No, that was, I think, later in the 80s. That was around 87, 88 or so. Oh, okay, so it, um, it will be something you bring up on your next... He was probably uh, still on TJ Hooker at this point, wasn't he? Yeah, I'm not sure when that show ended, but that was the early... Did it get to the mid-80s? It was, I know it was still going in 84. I don't know if it was still going in 86. Um, well, I had completely forgotten, actually, about Rescue 911. And then the scene in this movie where uh, him and McCoy and uh, the girl, they're going through the hospital in their scrubs. I just, it popped in my head. I'm like, Rescue 911. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing about the plot of this movie, of course, is the ecological message. It is, of course, the one with the whales. It's the one about literally saving the whales. Um, it's the not subtle. No. And it, it is heavy-handed. The first line in Nick Meyer's part of the script, after they travel in time and they emerge in the 20th century, the first line of his that's in the movie is when Spock says... Given the levels of pollution in the atmosphere, I believe we are in the late 20th century. <laughs> because that 
from the perspective of the future, is the identifying feature of our time. And there, there is the extended scene in the Cetacean Institute with the quite graphic videos of whalers cutting up whales. Yeah. Just carving the blubber off of them and just... For a movie this tame, you know, for a movie this, like, lighthearted and fun, there's really quite graphic animal abuse videos right in the middle of it. Um, they also have Dr. Taylor give her entire spiel about how we're killing these creatures and this is man's legacy. They don't, like, hit the highlights of that or just say that she cares about this. They have her entire spiel in the movie given to the viewer. And then if that's not enough to hammer the point home, at the end of the movie, they encounter an actual whaling ship actually about to murder our actual whales. Right. Given the lighthearted tone of the movie, there isn't really a villain. I don't think the probe is really a villain. That That's just, you know, the damage it does is incidental. The damage that the whalers are doing is intentional, but they are in so little of the movie... They can't really identify them as the villains of the piece. The villain is man who hunts these beautiful, gentle creatures. Yeah, it's man versus nature, yes. And the other villain is Bob, her co-worker that is not as sympathetic to her plight as he should be. Ah, screw Bob. <laughs> Do you want to talk about the love triangle between Kirk, Dr. Taylor, and Bob? Hey, um, you know what I noticed? In the first um, Star Trek, the motion picture, they had Stephen Collins. Then in this one, they have her name, I think it's uh, Catherine Hicks. Yes. Um, well, back in the late 90s, I watched, like, Seventh Heaven. I'm sorry to um, admit that. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't want to. You know what? You know what? I, I no, no shame. No shame. I'm not here to judge. <laughs> I just found it odd that the parents from that show were in Star Trek movies. Both of them, yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. It was just kind of weird. Well, Catherine Hicks has the advantage of she's never been arrested for statutory rape. Ooh, yeah. Yes, to the best of my knowledge. So there's that. Thanks for bringing the podcast down. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> although, although, really, I, I, I blame Stephen Collins more, but... <laughs> <laughs> well... Um, on that note, we're taking a commercial break to find out all about the podcast on the Place to Be Nation. Let's hit it, Glenn. Wow! Wow! <laughs> yeah, Acted like your name's on the door. consideration paid for by the following what's up everybody this is kevin kelly make sure you check out every episode of the kevin kelly show right here on the place to be nation place to be nation.com the kevin kelly show every episode is a winner at least we hope 
Place Nation's Justin Rosero here. In addition to the Kevin Kelly Show, we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes and PlaceTomination.com. You can check out Scott Criscolo and me on the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast, with our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current day wrestling with main event, Mission Indie Possible, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on WWE, NXT, and Ring of Honor Super Shows. And relive wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series, led by Ben Morse and the Dangerous Alliance Wrestling Podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. we got sports covered, too, with the Sports Evolution Mega Show with Scott, Dr. G, Cowboy, and Cowboy Sr., the Kings of Sport, led by Live Audio Wrestling's godfather, Nate Milton, as well as the NBA Team Podcast and the TJ McLoon Show. PTBN tackles pop culture and irreverence with Richard and the Mailman, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, and if you like a hybrid of all of this in list form, check out Jordan Duncan's Rank in File. All of these shows are available on PlaceTomination.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. We want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and Scott Keats' Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceTomination.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This is Parv, and I'm here to tell you to listen and subscribe to the pro-wrestling-only Place to Be Nation podcast network. That's the PWO PTBN podcast network, where you'll find a ton of in-depth shows done by hardcore fans. We've got Chris Zellner's one-two punch of Exile on Bad Street, and with David Bickenspan, a smash hit between the sheets. We've got Wrestling Culture with Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave. Goodwill Wrestling and the reaction shows with Good Old Will from Texas. We got This Week in Wrestling with my man Pete and Johnny Sorrow. Stephen Graham and Tim Livingston's Pro Wrestling Super Show. Tag Teams Back Again with Kelly and Marty Sleaze. And a ton of other great shows too. And of course, there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network. the Glenn Butler Podcast, our spectacular discussion of Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, a movie in which there are a lot of colorful metaphors, aren't there? The hell they are. Double dumbass on YouTube. Yeah, this is a podcast where we use a lot of colorful metaphors, too. I just say the word fuck a lot. The hell you do. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as to the actual use of the colorful metaphors in the movie... Is that kind of a parochial attitude? Because that feels like something that old people say about young people a lot. You know, they don't understand you if you don't swear every other word. Things like that. I guess it is sort of a parochial attitude, but maybe it's just a different type of speech. You know, speech evolves. They're from 300 years in the future. 
their swears are going to be so much more advanced. Their swears are going to be different, and their usage of swears is going to be different. I mean, look at when people curse in a Shakespeare play compared to when people curse now. It's different. True, yeah, definitely. Uh, Andy, are there any other colorful metaphors you want to use right now? Well, I don't have any um, colorful uh, metaphors, but I like how when they first come to, uh, what is it, 1984 uh, uh, or 6, yeah. Well, it's Kirk, he's like a cool dude, and everybody else is the typical fish out of water. And it just made me think of on your last uh, Star Trek podcast, or not your last one, but your first one, uh, where you're talking about Kirk, and he was listening to the Beastie Boys. It's like, yeah, he's a hip dude, and he's like still, like you said, he's a hip dude, and he's like with it. Almost like he's plucked out of the 80s, and he's showing everybody else how to be hip. Well, that sort of plays into the idea that Kirk is more at ease with himself now. Kirk is sort of not as hung up about things. He's a lot more, the hell with it, let's just go for it kind of attitude. So that he's a lot more at ease. He's a lot more, hey, I'm fine. I'm fitting in the 80s. I'm talking to these people from the past. And I'm a-okay. Doing LDS and drinking a beer. Yeah. And he has a reaction to his first sip of beer, too. He doesn't quite know what to make of it, but, you know, he goes back for more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I noticed that, too. It's kind of like, hmm, it's kind of good. His, his very conspicuously placed Michelob. <laughs> well, that's something that I took note of, that since they're traveling back to modern times, this is the first Star Trek movie where they had any opportunity to do product placement. And they did rather prominent product placement for Michelob and the Pacific Bell Yellow Pages. Yeah, for sure. That's not exactly something they could have done in Star Trek II. It's something that they do when they get the chance, I suppose, but the chances are kind of few and far between. I don't really think they got any chance other than Star Trek IV when they travel to the past, and then in the 2009 movie they do a couple of things. Other than that, I don't think they managed to sneak anything in there. Right. Well, there were there were the last two movies, as, as well as four. I'm thinking about... Yeah, that's what I meant when I said four and then the 2009 movies. Yes. I meant the last two movies in Star Trek Four. Yes, I... Yes, I was fucking agreeing with you, alright? <laughs> anyway, I would like to talk about the characters in this movie. and Ugh, characters. I know, right? <laughs> Characters welcome. And how how they're used, how they're developed, if they're developed, and, and just the, the general use of each character in the movie. First, obviously, is Captain Kirk, hashtag prosthetic hair, who, again, because of the tone of the movie, doesn't have much of a journey this time, because this is kind of the moment of grace when everyone gets to have a little fun. But, like we said, his characterization is a little more charming, a little more witty. Not that he hadn't been before, but those aspects of the character's personality are really coming out more. Andy, what do you think of the way Kirk is used in this movie? I just thought it was, like I said, like he seems more like William Shatner that I know than uh, Captain Kirk. Or maybe more like Denny Crane. <laughs> oh, he's not nearly there yet. Yeah. Well, we sort of talked about it a little earlier that he's sort of... He is after the point in Star Trek Three where he flushed his entire life's work down the toilet, and so now he's sort of freed of that burden. And so he's sort of just more carefree, he's more freewheeling, he's maybe slightly reckless, at least more than he used to be. 
he's just sort of liberated like that. That he's not attached to this decades-long, meticulously built Starfleet career anymore. He just dropped all of that, like, useless flotsam, and now he's doing whatever the fuck he feels like. Also, at, at the end of the movie, of course, he has to face up for his crimes, and all the crimes that everyone else committed. And whatever you might say about a tacit criticism of Kirk in Star Trek II, when his past came back to haunt him and his decisions led to all of this strife and Spock's death and everything, and in Star Trek III, where in following up from that, he had to flush his career down the toilet. In Star Trek IV, he finally has to face his court-martial, he has to face the music for everything he's done, and the punishment that the Federation Council lays on him is to give him what he always wanted in the first place. Like, since the beginning of the first movie. He wanted to be back on the bridge, he wanted the ship, he wanted to be captain again, and his slap-on-the-wrist punishment is to get exactly that. The thing is, everyone knew that's exactly what he wanted. In Star Trek The Motion Picture, the first thing Decker says is, oh, you were trying to figure out a way to get back in the captain's chair. And in Star Trek Two, you know, Spock keeps trying to offer him command. And in Star Trek Three, when he steals the ship, Captain Stiles on the Excelsior goes on the comm and says, if you do this, you'll never command a starship again. To which I kind of always, whenever I watch that movie, I want Kirk to respond... I'm an admiral! I'm never going to command a starship again! And then. <laughs> and then. The hell I will. There's another um, colorful <laughs> metaphor. Yes. It's just like at the beginning of this movie, when they're all voting on whether or not to go back and face their court-martial, Kirk says after the vote, let it be known that the commander and crew of the late Starship Enterprise. Well, he wasn't the commander of the Enterprise, and most of them weren't the crew of the Enterprise. Well, that goes back to something we were discussing in Star Trek One, as to what people's technical rank and technical specification is, and the job that they're doing. Well, the and last... which one of those you use when you're identifying them. The last time any of them had an assignment... Chekhov was on the Reliant, Kirk was an admiral at the Academy, Sulu was flying Kirk around on a shuttle, Uhura was, I think, also on his staff coming over to the ship on Kirk's shuttle, McCoy was also on his staff flying around on Kirk's shuttle to inspect the ship. These people are not the commander and the crew of the Enterprise. They had many other assignments. And yet, their last acts were to command and crew the Enterprise. Their last acts were to commandeer the Enterprise. Small difference. <laughs> Important syllable you're cutting out there. Next, I want to talk about Spock, who, of course, is coming off of the Faltor Pan. He just recently has his mind again. He's being re-educated. And his characterization is kind of reset. In Star Trek I, he reached a milestone in terms of integrating the human part of his personality and the Vulcan part of his personality and his sort of dual heritage, and he reached a measure of peace with that. And then in Star Trek II, we saw how he acted after having reached that peace. And here, they've really reset that. So he is a little more like he was earlier in the television show, where he doesn't understand these silly humans and their emotions and their ability to flout logic. 
Well, I mentioned at the end of the Star Trek Three podcast that Spock at the very end of Star Trek Three, right after he wakes up, is sort of Spock stripped of artifice and propriety. It's Spock who doesn't know how he's supposed to act. At the beginning of Star Trek Four, it's Spock with nothing but artifice and propriety. It's nothing but how he is supposed to act. It's nothing but the decorum he feels is appropriate. Right, because that's what the Vulcans have been educating him in. Exactly. Also, I think that... No, actually, I don't think. Go ahead, Andy. I think uh, that Spock was just... I don't know, he was just on in this movie. Like, um, I think this is probably my favorite, I guess, movie or episode or anything with Spock. Because I like how... He's kind of, yeah, battling with the uh, logical and the um, illogical. Because isn't he the one that comes up with time travel as a way to solve everything? And it's like the most illogical thing, like, to do time travel. And he's like, all right, I'll start doing the math. There's a line that Spock quotes from Sherlock Holmes in Star Trek VI where he says, once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And that's really what I think about when he starts suggesting the time travel. Because... It's impossible for us to answer this probe. It's impossible for us to figure out the language of humpback whales and figure out how to send a signal. It's impossible for us to maintain power while this probe is around. It's impossible for us to do anything to save the planet without getting too close to the probe and losing all our power. Once you eliminate all the impossible things, whatever remains, however improbable, it looks like we're trying to take a Klingon bird of prey back in time to bring some whales forward to talk to the probe. I guess when I was watching it, I was thinking about once they mentioned time travel, because uh, I started thinking, like, well, how did they do it? Is it a, is it a wormhole or anything? And then I started thinking, like, well, other uh, movies with time travel, like, it's always by accident. Like, I guess Marty McFly in Back to the Future, he hops in the car to get away from those terrorists that killed Doc Brown. And boom, he hits the switch by accident or something. And I guess he goes back to, like, um, you know, 55. And then they have to find a way to get him back. In this, there's no like, time machine or anything. They're just like, let's do it. And it was cool. It's like, I wish I could just do that. Man, I wish I could solve my problems with uh, time. Yeah, well, the accidental discovery of, of their method of time travel is what happened in that episode of the original series where they introduced it. It's actually introduced in two different episodes of the original series. Yeah, true. Because they do it in naked time for like a couple of minutes or a half a day or something. And then they do it again in the Captain Christopher episode. Like the presence of Khan in Star Trek II, the just casual reference to, oh yeah, we can time warp. That's another callback to the original series that Harv Bennett and Nick Meyer are making. I'm actually glad I watched this movie because in the fall, I don't know if you guys watched it, but I saw The Martian like a couple times in, uh, um, in the movie theaters. And they do something like, spoiler alert, they kind of slingshot around a planet to build up momentum to um you know get to their destination like all right we'll do this we'll like slingshot around there and i'm like wait didn't they do that in other science fiction movies but i couldn't think of you know um any examples and now i'm like hey boom there's an example they kind of slingshot around the sun well they do that in science (laughs) yeah that's a that's a very common way for nasa to get probes like up to speed without using like tons and tons and tons and tons of fuel they're like hook around Venus and then hook around the sun and sort of get slingshotted to a high enough speed so they can get a probe out to Pluto within our lifetime. Huh. Yeah, there, there are far-reaching probes that swing around Jupiter because you can get a pretty good gravity assist from Jupiter. Wow, the Glenn Budler uh, podcast Spectacular is fun and also educational because I did not know that. <laughs> 
Just think about the calculations that have to be involved with that, though, because you got this probe. You're not just launching it from Earth and trying to hit Jupiter or the moons of Saturn or the recent Pluto flyby last summer or whatever. You're launching this probe, and it sort of orbits Earth and hooks around Earth, and then it hooks around another planet, and then it hooks around the sun, and eventually just gets flung out into the outer atmosphere. And you've got to get every single one of those trajectories just right or else the thing just goes flying off into nowhere yeah that was something that a lot of people were noting with respect to the recent pluto flyby i think the figure i saw was that they calculated so many slingshots and gravity assists and they calculated the time of arrival at pluto and their calculation for something that took years going around celestial bodies that, again, you're not just firing something in a straight line because everything is in motion. Yeah. All of these planets are orbiting. The place you're launching the probe from is orbiting. All the planets that you're getting the gravity assist from are orbiting around the sun. You're, you're shooting at like 17 different moving targets. And their estimated time of arrival at the nearest point near Pluto was off by about a minute. <laughs> NASA, they have their shit together. Here's one for your best of a clip show. Um, the Glenn Butler podcast is fun and educational. So see, you can, um, you can use that as future um, reference. Hey, kids. <laughs> it's science education time. Hey, kids, it's orbital mechanics time. Hey. Newton couldn't have calculated this shit. Yeah, they don't just do that in science fiction. They do that in science. I'm not book smart. I guess I'm just TV smart. I'm mostly blog smart. <laughs> I'm mostly PBS smart. Yeah, there you go. Oh, oh, Glenn, don't sell yourself short. You're like the smartest guy I know. Well, thank you. That's the best part of science fiction is when it's actual science. <laughs> Moving back, on with characters. Back to Spock, though. <laughs> he calculated the slingshot around the sun for the time warp. Exactly. And, and his calculations even though they were based on guesses, were incredibly, incredibly accurate. Um, back to my impression that they kind of reset his character a little. He almost felt like he was acting a lot like Data did in The Next Generation, where he didn't understand figures of speech, and he didn't understand people's intentions. You know, there's that great exchange where McCoy says, no, you're joking. Spock says, a joke. A story with a humorous climax. <laughs> like, all he has is a dictionary. Uh, and th that struck me as very, very much like Data, especially in the early seasons of Next Gen. Well, I think that's sort of very emblematic of his Vulcan education, since he was re-educated on Vulcan. That sounds like something that would be the result of a Vulcan education. Would Vulcans teach him about jokes? Would Vulcans teach him about cursing? Would Vulcans teach him about, you know, lying to people? The Spock that we knew, even in the original series, had 10 or 15 years of experience of living around humans, working with humans, being commanded by humans on a ship full of humans. This Spock doesn't have that experience. Or he, it's in there somewhere, but he doesn't quite know how to connect to it and integrate it into his larger personality. And there are these small drops throughout the movie to signal Spock's transition. 
there is maybe the best exchange in the movie toward the end of the movie when Spock finally masters the colorful metaphors. Oh god, I love that line so much. I mean, this movie's full of good lines, but oh god, I love that line so much. When Kirk runs onto the bridge at the end and he just yells out, where the hell is the power you promised me? And Spock just immediately, one damn minute, Admiral! It's like, yes! You got it! You got it! Yeah, like, he... By the end of the movie, he knows the colorful metaphors. He feels the camaraderie that leads him to tell Kirk, no, we really have to go back and get Chekhov. When, when we were talking about Star Trek Three, I was thinking that, you know, Spock defines that movie by his absence. Spock is so important that they have to go find him. There isn't going to be a, a movie, The Search for Chekhov. But, you know, the end of the second act of this movie is The Search for Chekhov. <laughs> exactly. I mean, Kirk's not even like, you know, hey, we can go and get the whales and then come back and find Chekhov. That's no, can't do that. Uh, so that kind of signal posts uh, Spock's advancement. You know, he feels that they have to go back and get him, even though it might not strictly be logical. Uh, there is the excellent scene at the end with Sarek where you really feel something come full circle that was kind of implicit. In Sarek's appearance in the original series, Journey to Babel, he was tough on Spock, he was somewhat disapproving, and we didn't really see them together again until the end of this movie. I'm, I'm, I'm of course forgetting the uh, animated series episode that showed some more of the dynamic between them, where he, you know, was, was kind of a strict influence toward Vulcan absolutism. Um, he appeared in the last movie with Kirk, and he was very grave and very serious, and of course he, he's a very grave and serious guy. And then at the end of this movie, Sarek admits, you know, I disapproved of you joining Starfleet, these people that you've surrounded yourself with and your conduct has, has shown me that I was wrong. These are people of good character. These are good choices. So by the end, even Sarek has to admit some exceptions to that sort of Vulcan absolutism. I kind of feel in that scene that there's a moment where Sarek says, you know, these people you've surrounded yourself with, these are all people of good character. And Spock sort of responds like, they're my friends. And it just feels like a moment where Sarek just wants to, like, roll his eyes and go, God, I'm trying to meet you halfway. Give me a fucking olive branch here. And, and then, of course, when Spock finally is able to say, I feel fine, when he's in touch with himself enough to feel a feeling and to express it, and to express it to his father... You know, that really kind of brings his journey around again, and his and his journey with, with his father around again. Uh, Andy, what did you think of that whole dynamic? I liked it, but I kind of thought maybe they should have cast someone older for the father, because they almost kind of look about the same age. Unless Vulcans, they, like, have a really slow aging process. I think that's sort of a problem, because Leonard Nimoy just looks really old. He has a very long face. He has a very wrinkled face. The sharply arched eyebrows don't help. I noticed that at the beginning of the movie with Jane Wyatt as Amanda, that Spock and Amanda basically looked the same age. Uh, just a couple last notes on Spock. There is, of course, the magic of filmmaking, the conveniently ripped strip of robe that he covers his ears with throughout the whole movie. 
At least that's better than in the original series where I think there was one episode where Kirk just said, oh, he's Chinese. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in City on the Edge of Forever, I think it was that he said he got his ears caught in a rice-picking machine. Yes, a mechanical rice-picker. Uh, so, you know, bending down and tearing a perfect strip off your robe, perfectly fine. I'm not sure how much Kirk's line about he's Chinese might have also been related to his skin color. Yes. Because Vulcans supposedly have copper blood, and so they have green blood, and that lends them sort of a power that I guess could be construed through the racist lens of the racist 1960s. Uh, That's just an uncomfortable line all around. Yeah. Next, I want to talk about McCoy in this movie, especially following off Spock, because their dynamic in this movie is so great in the couple of scenes they have together. The characters in this movie are paired off, so every set of people has their own little mission so that everyone in the ensemble really has something to do, and something to do that's important to the plot. So, Bones and Spock are only together a few times in the movie, but... I really was getting into how, again, following directly on Star Trek Three, Bones was trying to be really friendly and really close and buddy-buddy with Spock because they've gone through this thing together. He's had his Katra in his mind. And Spock was just having none of it because he was still, at that point in the movie, following directly off that Vulcan re-education. And he could not feel things like friendship. The other big thing that McCoy does in this movie, of course, and it's the source of great comedy and great comedic acting from D. Kelly, is his absolute horror at the state of medicine in 1986. Oh, yeah, he called it um, the Dark Ages. I thought that was pretty funny. He gives that lady, like, a pill. Pill, because he's, like, horrified by that she's still on um, dialysis. He's like, take that, and then call me. (laughs) I did think it was an interesting juxtaposition because in the last movie, when they were talking about the Katra, McCoy said, I'd rather give him one of my kidneys than this thing that's scrambled in my head. And in this movie, he just happens to have on him a pill to give to this woman that grows her a new kidney in about ten minutes. <laughs> so, he's not willing to sacrifice all that much. It's a metaphor. Not a colorful one. The other great bit is when he's arguing with the doctor who's about to drill into Chekhov. And they're having this great, like, technical argument, just, like, throwing jargon back and forth angrily. I love scenes like that, where they're talking about stuff that, like, I can sort of figure out because I've seen the scene and heard those words, like, 400 times. But they're just throwing back and forth technical terms really angrily, and I I love that sort of dialogue. I also noticed that the two doctors that they named in that scene when they're in the elevator and McCoy is horrified at chemotherapy, the two doctors they name in that scene are Gottlieb and Weintraub. I wonder if all the doctors in San Francisco are Jewish. (laughs) Again, kind of comedy logic, I suppose. Next, let's talk about Jillian Taylor, the aforementioned Catherine Hicks, whose big journey in this movie is out of her boring century. That's kind of an idea that I think people watching sci-fi, especially at a young age, tend to feel. Like, there's all of this wondrous technology, and Star Trek is presenting an era with no money and no economic pressures, which, 
was invented for this movie. I mean, in the last movie, McCoy is trying to hire a ship, literally. But that's invented in this movie and integrated into Star Trek going forward. And you see this better world in a way, and you want someone to just swoop in and take you there. And so there might be a bit of a fan insert element there, but I think it really comes off better than that description might imply. I think there's a more problematic way you could read her character. Because it's all too common to portray a woman as being married to her job in a way that they don't often do with male characters. I mean, most male characters that are workaholics spend 80 hours a week at the office and then go home to the wife and kids. Whereas the woman who's dedicated to her job because she cares about the whales has literally no attachments in the 20th century other than the two whales. That's true. She isn't really a person with a background. Well, she explicitly says she has no background. Yeah. She says when she asks Kirk to bring her with him into the future. She says that she has nowhere to go other than with those whales. She apparently has no parents, no siblings, no significant other, no romantic entanglements. No friends. No close friends. No landlord. No sorority sisters. No high school classmates. No woman she shared an apartment with in her 20s. She has no attachments on this earth other than to two whales. And that asshole Bob. And that (laughs) asshole Bob. Well, I guess I didn't really read into it that much. I just thought it meant like, oh, she doesn't have anything left because she was kind of the caretaker to the whales and now she's out of a job, um, right? So I just kind of looked at it as that way. True. I think it's also neat to note that in the original conception of this movie, the contemporary character who was going to be significant in the movie was supposed to be played by Eddie Murphy. Which would make for a very different movie. I've never quite understood how that would have worked. Well, I think he probably wouldn't have had that dinner scene with Kirk, for one thing. Well, because he wasn't going to play a whale biologist. Who's it going to be? Axel Foley? A Star Trek Beverly Hills Cop kind of mashup? That's some good fanfic right there. I read a summary once, many years ago. But wasn't he going to play like some like weird nebishy guy? I think it was basically going to be like Richard Pryor in Superman 3. <laughs> oh, God. See, I am the only person on this planet who enjoyed Superman 3. There are parts of Superman 3 I enjoy, but most of them aren't Richard Pryor's role. <laughs> but we can wait until we start doing our Superman vault series. From what I've read, the only thing I actually remember was that there was supposed to be some scene where he had a phaser and he was doing, like, slapstick. Like, tumbling and stumbling around and dropping the phaser and accidentally dissolving things. And just, like, a whole slapstick sequence like that, which sounds like something that benefits the movie by not being in it. Yeah, that sounds awful. Yeah, that does sound bad. I'm glad it was more the comedy way that they went instead of trying to throw some name actor in there. So they got to work his bits in there. That's that's another element, too. It it wouldn't have been the one with the whales. It would have been Star Trek starring Eddie Murphy. Also, of course, with the budget these movies were made on, they weren't getting him anyway. Not in 1986. Well, I don't know. If they had to cut the budget from some other parts of the movie, that might have improved it. 
What parts do you think were over budgeted? That really long, completely nonsensical, completely pointless CGI sequence from when they go back in time. That is something else I wanted to mention at some point in here. That scene is very odd. It's very inaccessible and kind of avant-garde with the CGI busts of the main cast members with quotes from later in the movie kind of layered in the audio. And then this sort of, I don't want to say expressionist, but, but overly arty, I think you could say, vision of someone diving into water and some wheat and this, like, vague concept of a whale. It's very avant-garde. It's very weird. And I like for Star Trek to be a little weird. I think that's a good thing for Star Trek to be. I don't mind that scene. I don't mind that it's in the movie. It just stands out. Uh, Andy, what, what do you think of that whole sequence? I had to kind of rewind it and watch it again because it kind of took me off guard. I think I was like laughing about some stuff. And then I was like, oh, wait, what just happened? So I had to rewind it. But I didn't dislike it because in all those movies, when they go through time, they go through some weird like warp or something. So it kind of fit, I guess. And it didn't bother me. Yeah, I guess they wanted something notable. They wanted something that really stood out to signify the weirdness of time travel itself, I suppose. Um, I think it's notable that they didn't do another one when they were going back forward. Yeah, I was going to say. They could have just done it in reverse. That would have been kind of funny. <laughs> I mean, it didn't bother me as much as the five minutes of Whale and Probe singing at each other. It didn't drag like that, but it was still just sort of... I like that you already called it avant-garde and expressionistic and avant-garde and weird. <laughs> I believe in that order. Yeah, all right. Because it reminded me more than anything of a modern art piece that I don't get. They needed to redo it at the end of the movie and then added a bust of uh, Catherine Hicks. There you go. <laughs> or they could have just had the time warp and the screen blows out white and then they fade back into the bridge. Yeah. They could have just done that and saved a whole lot of money on CGI. Yeah, but that's kind of typical, isn't it? You know, do, do something different. Be bold. Be weird. There's a difference between weird and nonsensical. I suppose. Weird is interesting. Nonsensical adds nothing. Well, hey, it's two to one, so so we like it. And so just <laughs> deal with it, Scott. Yeah, but I'm the one editing the podcast, so I'll make it sound like I won. <laughs> That's your revenge for all those arguments you lost. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> ah! Who else is going to back your side, though? Are you going to re-edit someone into this podcast and kind of create... Uh, who, yeah, who are you going to call up on Skype? In here. I'm just going to pull sounds from here and there and piece it together so it sounds like one of you said, I totally agree with you, dude. Yeah, I totally agree with you, dude. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> no, Glenn. No. Moving onward in our travel through the characters of this film. Do some calculations and, like, um, go back in time and erase that you said that. Do the math now. Or edit your own damn podcast in a race that you said that. That's highly unlikely. <laughs> Moving on in our travel through the characters of this film, uh, it's nice to see Chekhov being important again. Uh, he kind of took Star Trek Three off a little bit. 
was he ever important? I was kind of wanting to ask you guys that because you guys are more and like the super fans than I am. He was important in Star Trek Two. He was kind of a way into the plot, so yeah, that yeah, so that Khan wasn't just discovered by a couple of strangers. True. And again, in this movie, he's important. He's you know one of the people on assignment. Star Trek Four assignment Alameda. <laughs> And again, of course, there's the search for Chekhov toward the end of the movie. So it, it, it's nice to see, not only is the ensemble coming together, but at one point they come together for Chekhov. Like, everyone's pitching in for him. That was nice to see. It was, it was neat for him to be important again. Chekhov is the one character who gets a wardrobe upgrade from Star Trek Three. Oh, yes. We're always on the uh, wardrobing tip here. Yeah, everyone else is still wearing the clothes they left Earth in in Star Trek Three when they stole the ship. Uhura's the only one in uniform. Scotty's in that, like, velour uniform. Spock is in a robe he got on Vulcan. But everyone else is in the clothes they were wearing when they stole the Enterprise. Because apparently they only had one set of clothes for three months on Vulcan. And they can't find any human clothes on Vulcan. But Chekhov is no longer wearing the Dutch boy suit. <laughs> he now just has, like, a plain black shirt and new leather pants... And Kirk's leather jacket that was last seen being laid over David's body and abandoned on the Genesis planet. Yeah, not only could they not find a clothiers on Vulcan, but apparently there aren't any, like, Federation military police on Vulcan either. Like, they have to come home for their own trial. It, is, is that kind of like when a celebrity or, or someone is under indictment and they make a big show of turning themselves in? The other note on Chekhov's wardrobe is I, I was watching out for this because I was curious if they'd fuck it up. But after Chekhov gets back from the hospital, he spends the entire rest of the movie in scrubs. Yes, I wanted to mention that too. In his hospital outfit. He's piloting the ship, or Sue's piloting, but he's at the navigator station in his scrubs. He climbs out of the ship, and they're like swimming around and jumping in the ocean to celebrate the whales singing, and he's still in these hospital scrubs. <laughs> I was watching out to see if like, once he got back on the ship, would he just suddenly mysteriously have his clothes back, but no, those clothes were abandoned in Mercy Hospital in 1986. Yeah, those clothes have long since crumbled to dust. <laughs> I don't want to be like a Chekhov hater. Like, sorry if I came off saying that, but I always kind of wondered, like, I know that he wasn't in the first season, and then they added him in the second season because I guess they wanted a younger kid to appeal to. They they wanted they wanted someone younger. They gave him the Beetle Bowl cut in his first episodes. Uh, they also wanted a Russian there. Oh, I'm actually kind of glad that they did give him a big role in this movie because, like, I was always kind of like, oh, yeah, what's Chekhov doing? But he was awesome in this movie. Oh, yeah, and, and Walter Koenig, like everyone else, we had seen their characters in dramatic settings, but they were doing comedy here. His timing in that sort of who's on first scene with the interrogator was great. That was really awesome, too. When they first pair off into teams and he's with Uhura and he just kind of walks up to that cop and he's like, Hey, uh, do you know where Alameda is? And the dude just totally, like, no-sells him. <laughs> I was dying, like, like I am right now. It was just hilarious. Yeah, that's a great bit where Chekhov is walking around asking about the nuclear vessels. And can you direct me to the naval base in Alameda? I sound like I belong there. <laughs> it's kind of like one of those modern shows where you're on candid camera and you got some weird guy asking you questions and people are on the street like, 
what is this? And they're just walking on by, ignoring him. Yeah, what would you do if, in the middle of the Cold War, a Russian guy was asking how to get to nuclear vessels? <laughs> uh, with Chekhov, for much of the movie, of course, was Uhura, who sadly is a little less important and has a little less to do this time. Well, what did she do less than Chekhov other than get captured and have to be rescued? Well, she didn't get that comedic scene like Chekhov did with the interrogator. She didn't have part of the development of the plot centered on her. Of everyone who, you know, got something to do, each group had a separate thing to do that was important to the plot, she didn't have a lot to do in the fulfillment of that. Yeah, I guess she didn't have a lot to actually do, but I kind of like... Um, how they did split everybody off, because it seemed like it was kind of given, except Kirk and Spock, it gave them all equal screen time. So I kind of like that. Yeah, I mean, she got some screen time, for sure. I'm just, I'm just saying her, you know, actual role was a little, I don't want to say diminished, because sadly she wasn't really the star of anything, but... Well, she got the 30 seconds of, like, button mashing, right? To try to um, decipher the whale. Yeah, that was not my favorite way of getting her more screen time, is just stall while she pretends to hit buttons for an extra 30 or 50 seconds. And they do it again later when they're trying to pick up the whale transponder code at the end. They do the same thing again where she just hits buttons on her console for an extended period of time where her hands get significant screen time as they hit switches. Scotty, however, is a little better served. He has his whole sequence with Dr. Nichols getting the transparent aluminum. He has the great Hello Computer scene where he's treating a Gen 1 Macintosh computer like Siri. Yeah, that scene sort of bothers me because this is my own personal bugaboo. Everyone has their own things that they know way too much about, and so when a movie gets it wrong, it bugs them. You cannot operate that model of Macintosh without using the mouse. You can't just, like, type exclusively and use exclusively keyboard commands and accomplish anything on that model of Macintosh. Let alone design a new form of industrial technology. Well, if it has some sort of molecular engineering program that lets you design molecules, then I suppose you could do that. But you couldn't open a menu or move the cursor without the mouse on that model of Macintosh computer. Well. Okay. Uh, also Scotty is the other character that gets a wardrobe change in the middle of the movie where he's wearing his velour shirt at first the one that he wore in Star Trek 3 and he takes all the command insignia off it like Kirk tells him to and then at some point later in the movie he switches from the velour shirt to that black vest that he wears in 5 and 6 a lot oh yeah Uh, Sulu in this movie as we mentioned in Star Trek II, Sulu also had some scenes cut in this movie. He had his role kind of commandeering the helicopter, which I don't think we actually saw him commandeer it. I don't know if he, like, stole it from the guy that he was originally talking to about it. But, you know, as the helmsman, he gets to pilot the ship. But, of course, his line early in the movie about how he was born in San Francisco, there was supposed to be a scene where he meets this little kid who turns out to be, like, his great-great-grandfather or something. Which, I don't know how the scene would have played, but it sounds like something that wasn't really necessary. 
Which is probably why I got cut. Yeah, I suppose. But it's just another time <laughs> that George Takei had his scenes cut, which is a little uncomfortable, I suppose. I was going to say, when you were talking about Uhura, I would probably pick out Sulu as the crew member who got the least to do. Or at least that we saw doing the least. Because we just saw him, like, meet the pilot of the helicopter, and then all of a sudden he's flying the helicopter in. We don't really see the process of that the way that we see Kirk and Spock arguing with the whale lady, the way that we see McCoy and Scotty haggling with the polymer guy. The way that we see Uhura on the nuclear vessel stealing the high-energy photons. We don't get that kind of scene with Sulu. He has less to do than everyone else. Or we see him doing less than everyone else. Mm. I want to talk about a few of the more minor characters as well. And the first one who comes to mind for me is the Klingon ambassador at the beginning of the movie. Who has what might be an entirely reasonable point about how Kirk kind of murdered a bunch of Klingons in the last movie? I wouldn't say that he has a valid point. Well, I mean, Kirk did murder a bunch of Klingons in the last movie. Kirk defended himself against an attack by a bunch of Klingons in the last movie. Yeah, he lured them into a trap and blew them up. They destroyed the Grissom. He then defended himself when they tried to destroy the Enterprise. Sure, but that ambassador is someone who's just entirely undercut. Like, he's basically there so the Federation Council can all have a good laugh at him when Sarek one-ups him. Yeah, because he's not even there in the final scene. Like, I thought he would be there, but then they just have Kirk, yeah, kind of almost... Oh, if he was there at the end, he would just be, like, impotently shaking his fist some more. (laughs) (laughs) Kirk, like that. there, there, There is no peace while Kirk lives, and, you know... We'll see how that goes. Is that, like, because I was thinking, like, I don't remember Six as much. Um, does that tie in uh, with how um, that's a Klingon plot, or is it totally separate? Uh, that movie has a lot to do with Kirk's attitudes towards the Klingons, and the attitudes of a lot of the characters. And so all of that kind of gets worked in. Uh, there aren't really direct references Oh, okay, because, cause, yeah, like, I guess my knowledge isn't as good, and I'm kind of going through, like, I like that you're going through these and these podcasts, because now I can um, rewatch them. And I wasn't sure how Six worked in there, because when I was watching the beginning of this, and they had the, uh, the council, and then the Klingon was there, I kind of thought that maybe, like, they were slowly building towards that, and then it would have made more sense to have the Klingon movie as the fifth movie. You kind of build on that tension, like how each of these movies kind of do. They have like a separate story, but they kind of flow together. Well, we will have the Klingons with us for the fifth movie, so we'll be tracking that as well. Just a couple more characters I want to mention. Uh, Savick is very nearly not in the movie. So close to not having Savick in this movie. I like that in the three months that they've been on Vulcan, she hasn't had a chance to tell Kirk how David died. And when she finally does, the sum total of what she says is, he saved us. Especially since what she told him in Star Trek 3 was, quote, he gave his life to save us. Yeah, but it's been a couple of years, and you know, movie-going audiences need that little summary at the beginning of everything that happened in the last movie. Like when the Federation Council watches a previously on Star Trek montage. Yeah, this is the second Star Trek movie in a row that has clips from the previous movie played right at the beginning. 
And it's also the first Star Trek movie since the motion picture that doesn't have a character's name in the title. Indeed. Another scene that was very deservedly cut from the movie would apparently have established that after the finger sex on the Genesis planet, that Savick was pregnant. Which is a very, very uncomfortable thing, considering that Spock was not only several decades her senior, but also her mentor from Star Trek II. It's uncomfortable because Spock is both several decades her senior... And also a minor. Yes. Like, that is a fucked up relationship, if it was a relationship. It's fucked up in both ways at the same time. They are both the predator, and they're both the prey. Yeah, that is very, very uncomfortable, and I think putting that in the script is kind of a bum note on Harv Bennett's part. And it is very deservedly cut, indeed. Yeah, because it would kind of mess with the tone. This is kind of lighthearted and fun, and then that kind of would have, if you added in more of her, it would have kind of changed the tone, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's just kind of a random way to make sure she's not in this movie. Was that going to be followed up on later in the movie? Was it going to be like, you know, come on, Spock, you need to get your personality together so you can be a father to your child? No, it was just, we don't want to have Savick in 1986 San Francisco. And so she can't come back on the ship with them, and so she has to stay on Vulcan because she's pregnant. Because once you find out you're pregnant, you can't, like, leave town as if the cops want to talk to you or something. I don't know. It's this kind of old-fashioned, kind of uncomfortable conception. It doesn't make sense that she'd still be on Vulcan anyway. Among them all, she's the one that didn't break any regulations. She could get picked up on a shuttle and go back to Earth two days later to be reassigned. Yeah. I mean, she has to be debriefed about what the fuck happened to the Grissom, and they'll take testimony about what the fuck happened with Kirk, and then she'll go on to a new assignment. She's not facing any charges. Also, I think there's kind of an undercurrent here where, over the last two movies, the younger characters introduced in Star Trek II have both been summarily disposed of. Well, because we're not interested in younger characters, we're interested in the people we were watching in the 1960s. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're not interested in new characters, we're interested in people who are getting older and making movies about how they're older, except in this movie, they're fresh and they feel young and they can do stuff. Also, just as a quick note, there is an appearance here by the late, great Majel Barrett as Dr. Chapel. Uh, which is the last appearance of Dr. Chapel in Star Trek. It's also her first appearance since Gene Roddenberry was fired off the franchise. Yes, definitely. Scott, I think there was one more very minor character you wanted to give a mention to. There was one name that jumped out at me in the credits when I was watching the movie recently. I was just, you know, watching the credits scroll by because... Like the original series, they had, like, shots from the movie on the background during the credits. And so I was watching that and watching the cast scroll by. And I noticed, if I remember, it's like the one of the last people listed in the cast was the actor Joe Lando. Star of the soap opera One Life to Live and the CBS drama Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. He played the crucial role of Shore Patrolman. And it is his first acting credit. Wow. When you first mentioned him, the name didn't stick with me. But yeah, Joe Lando from One Life to Live. 
and later the Dr. Quinn medicine woman. Yeah, I don't care and about Dr. Quinn. Several yeah. Dr. Quinn follow-up TV movies. And, wow. And nothing recently that I recognize, but Star Trek Four is his first acting credit. Nice. As Shore Patrolman. Shore Patrolman. Uh, Andy, there was one more minor character I think you wanted to mention. Actually, there were two. There's one guy who's working with Starfleet when they're under the rainfall and the storms. That's a guy, Michael Berryman. He's one of the aliens, and uh, he's been in a bunch of horror movies and stuff. I think even in the X-Files episode. But then there's one um, who it'll probably only amuse, like, just me. But when they first, like, uh, the movie first um, starts and they show um, Starfleet uh, on that ship, I guess, that uh, picks up the probe signal, there's a guy with, like, white hair and a white Fu Manchu and he just looks like he was on the wrong set. Like, he should be in a kung fu movie. I don't know. It just it was goofy to me. Um, do you know who I'm talking about, or can you visualize? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he looked like he's straight out of, like, Big Trouble in Little China. Like, like he just happened to be on the set of that movie filming next to this, and they needed an extra. So he's like, hey, come on. We need somebody to um, sit here. They actually use the same makeup. I don't know if it's the same actor. I don't think it's the same actor. But they use the same makeup on Kurtwood Smith when he plays the Federation president in Star Trek VI. Oh, that's right. He is in there. So I don't know if that's meant to be the same character. I don't think it's Kurtwood Smith in Star Trek IV. But it's at least the same species. Yeah, they're both uh, Ephrosians. I had forgotten the name of the species. You out-nerded me, sir. <laughs> Welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. We should also note that the captain of his ship was played by Madge Sinclair. I was just about to mention Madge Sinclair, yes. And also in cameos, uh, Brock Peters from To Kill a Mockingbird and later Star Trek appearances is a uh, Starfleet Admiral. Admiral Cartwright. Admiral Cartwright, yes. I outnerded you, sir. Oh yeah, the Klingon guy, he seemed really familiar to me. He had like a boomy voice. And stuff, and I looked him up, like where I knew him from, and he was in that Pippi Longstocking movie in the eighties. Did you guys ever see that one? I never saw that, but that actor. Now that you mention it, that I remembered, that actor who plays Ambassador Camerag, a name which I think probably only appears in the novels. I don't think he's actually named in this film or the script. Right. That actor who plays the Klingon ambassador in this movie is John Shuck, who plays Drawl on Babylon Five. Yes. And also, like, small character parts in a whole bunch of shows. I think he was on DS9 as a Cardassian. I think he was on, like, a couple other Star Trek series, even. He's been on, you know, like, NYPD Blue, On Order, you know, like, one-shots here and there. But One of those character actors, you've seen him everywhere. You've heard his voice everywhere. Yes. The one last thing I want to hit on before we wrap this up, as I want to hit on with all of these Star Trek movies, obviously, is the score. In this installment... By Leonard Rosenman, who has quite a career as a film composer, and a career in a few different styles. One of his styles is on display here, and it's one that's a little polarizing. Um, is it polarizing because it's weird? Because I kind of liked a little bit of the score, but then uh, there were two times I thought it was weird. Like where they fix Chekhov and they're like oh, leaving the hospital or something or they're running through the hospital and it sounds like marching band music. I don't know. It's really weird. 
there, there are a couple of chase cues when uh, the army guys are running after Chekhov and he gets injured, and then when they're escaping from the hospital, which are both kind of Russian-inflected, very stereotypically Russian-inflected. Yeah, it's like Russian as it's thought of by a entirely uninformed American from the mid-1980s. <laughs> Maybe that's what sounded weird to me, because I was like, this, this sounds kind of out of place. That was what struck me the most about this score. It's not bad music in and of itself, but it's just out of place in a Star Trek movie. Even the Star Trek comedy movie that's about saving the whales. The main theme is a fine piece of music. The whale theme is a fine piece of music, but it just... The whale theme works better, I think, than the main theme, but it's just it just doesn't sound right in a Star Trek movie. There's been a lot of different styles of music in Star Trek movies. From Goldsmith to Horner to Eidelman to McCarthy, to Giacchino, lots of different people doing lots of different kinds of music, and it all sort of works. It's just Leonard Roseman in Star Trek IV. It just doesn't jive for me. I mean, I enjoy listening to it. It's, it sounds fine. It just doesn't feel right in the movie to me. That's a view that I've seen fairly often. I don't think it's inappropriate, though. I don't think it doesn't fit that much. It's just that some of it sounds, of course, like several other Leonard Rosenman scores. I listened recently to his score to the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings movie, which basically has a large part of the main theme from Star Trek IV. And, of course, his theme from RoboCop 2 also has lots of similar melodic elements. So that's one thing. But we just talked about two James Horner scores in the last two podcasts, so that's not going to be a detriment. The only thing I remember about the RoboCop 2 score is when he had a chorus repeatedly sing the word RoboCop, 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 (laughs) in order to introduce the humanity of the character. An element of humanity, yes. And it didn't, like, fit in or blend at all. It was just, like, playing a theme, and then all of a sudden there'd be this chorus going, RoboCop! RoboCop! I can't sing. (laughs) You're the one that does all the singing on this podcast. Um, but aside from that, even... Yeah, you said he used music from RoboCop 2 in the movie. I don't remember anywhere in this movie where there's a chorus that just sings over the theme going, RoboCop! Do-do-do-do-do-do, Kirk and Spock! No, 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 no. Um, I will say, though, the main theme in a couple of its arrangements feels a little Christmassy. Hmm. Like... If it wasn't embedded in my brain as a Star Trek theme, which it is because I, I absorbed a lot of this stuff at the same time at, at an early age, if it wasn't embedded in my mind as a Star Trek theme, I might picture like the end of The Miracle on 34th Street or some like children's Christmas movie where it's ending with a big parade when all the toy stores open or something. That, that's, that's something that, that might come to mind with, with the main theme here. I don't know. I don't really get the Christmas thing. It doesn't sound that Christmassy to me. It just doesn't sound much like Star Trek. What sounded weird to me was, or maybe I'm just weird in general because I'm sounding kind of weird today, but uh, the ending of the movie where it's like the clip show over the credits, that music sounded like she'll be coming around the mountain when she comes. So I was like, I was getting ready to come here to record the podcast and I was kind of humming that. (laughs) That's interesting. I never got that impression. Well, then maybe, maybe I just interpreted it differently in my head. I don't know. 
One way that it tries to sound a lot more like Star Trek is that there is the fanfare and the theme from the original series in here. The fanfare had been used since Star Trek II. Horner had it in both of his scores. But the actual theme from the original series has been more rarely used in the movies. It was in a couple of scenes in Star Trek I under the Captain's Log segments, pretty much under duress. Goldsmith didn't really do those cues. I think those were composed by Alexander Courage, who did a lot of orchestration work for Goldsmith, you know, orchestrated his own theme for those sequences. Uh, Fred Steiner, who did a lot of music for the original series, was also working for Goldsmith for a long time and did a couple of cues on, on Star Trek One. But the main theme from the original series appears once at the end of Star Trek Three and once at the end of Star Trek Four, and each time it signals a restoration. Almost like an element of Star Trek, a fundamental element of what Star Trek is, is being restored to our characters. At the end of 3, it's Spock. At the end of 4, it's the reveal of the new Enterprise. And so that theme from the TV series comes back for isolated appearances. Its appearance at the end of this movie would indeed be its last appearance in a Star Trek movie until Star Trek Eleven. So, it'll be a little while. Scott, do you have any thoughts on the use of the Alexander Courage theme in this movie? Not really. Cool. But you should talk a little about the restoration of the Enterprise. Yes. Yes, that is definitely something that we should talk about. It's another sort of reification of what Star Trek is and under one idea of what it's supposed to be. It is all of these people together on the Enterprise. And so one job that they had to do at the end of this movie was to restore the Enterprise, that one last element. There was one trivia tidbit I was reading when we were preparing our Star Trek Three podcast that said that the people at ILM who were doing the effects for Three really, really wanted to destroy the Enterprise in that movie because they thought the model that Doug Trumbull built for Star Trek One was too big, it was unwieldy, they didn't like wheeling it around, they wanted to destroy the Enterprise and get a new model that would be easier for them to use. And so they were really behind destroying the Enterprise in that movie. Of course, for Star Trek IV, the instruction to the effects team was to take that old model out and put an A on it. And so, you know, we have a ship that is basically the same and looks exactly the same, and now there's an A on it. And that's our new Enterprise. The adventure continues. On that note, I think we will start to draw this show to a close. Thank you very much for listening. One thing we like to do, of course, when we have guests on, is ask about other media that you may have been consuming lately. Andy, have you been consuming any media lately? Um, just these uh, Star Trek movies. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> now let's get to our plugs. If you want to find me on the internet, you can do so. I'll allow it. I am at Bun on the Tumblr and on the Twitter. You can reach me by email at glennb, that's glenn with two n's, at placetobenation.com. Any questions, comments, suggestions for the show? We may be looking for questions for a future mailbag show that I would like to do, so if you have any ideas, send them on in. 
You can find listings for all of the Star Trek Film Vault podcasts that have been released thus far, as well as any articles that I've written about Star Trek at the site at placetobenation.com slash Star Trek. Simple, simple address. Plug it in. Andy, is there anywhere you want people to find you? Well, I I have one column uh, posted so far at the Squared Circle Cinema at Place to Be Nation. I haven't uh, thought of a movie yet for the second one. I was going to rent one the other night from the video store here in town, but they didn't have the one I was looking for, so I might have to try Netflix. Well, we'll look forward to the next installment of that whenever it materializes. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, speaking of Star Trek, are you ever going to go back to um, the uh, Deep Space Nine reviews? <sighs> How dare you? Oh. How dare you? <laughs> uh, are you ever going to go back to the Deep Space Nine reviews? I need <laughs> you, too, because I was doing that on my own blog, and I... Um, I think I was only up to, like, the fifth episode of reviews, but I watched about eight of them. That's something that I would like to do in time, but there are issues. But sometimes I think about it, and with enough thought, eventually comes embarrassment. And with embarrassment comes shame. And with shame, sometimes comes action. So, we'll have to see. Is that like one of those fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate things? Yeah, just as valid, too. <laughs> uh, Scott, no one can find you on the internet. You you are ghosting, you are hiding, you are hidden away. I just wanted to say that again. Oh, I won't find you, you, Scott. Please, uh, be on Facebook. Andy's begging you, man. Or let me text you like I text Glenn. <laughs> that sounds creepy. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I think I got... I, talk about CVG Spender. You're talking about CNBC Spender, too. Yeah. What's the next generation? What's a five-syllable thing? Um, I don't know. There was MUFON on the show. Uh, the man from Uncle Spender. <laughs> <laughs> on, on that note, I feel a great need to pull the ripcord and get out of here and go on with my day. And thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good night. We will see you later.
Kong.